Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this week we're talking with Chris Caldwell. Chris was a founder of Ecos Consulting, a firm that managed utility energy efficiency programs and also conducted energy use research. Chris is now a principal at Ecos Research, focusing on transformational changes in energy use and energy efficiency. Really excited to have Chris on the show today. Hey, Chris, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great. Thank you. And, and where are you sitting as we speak? I am in the home office uh, in Durango, Colorado, of all places. And it, it looks like the sun is shining there. Shockingly enough, the sun is shining for yet another of the 320 days a year that it does that. Isn't that fantastic? You know, all those heating, all those heating degree days and all that sunshine to match it, right? It's the, it's the, perfect... the, the joke around here is it's sunnier in the winter than it is in the summer. Not warmer, but it is sunnier. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's when we need it, right? We really need it in the in the winter. I I've um I've already introduced you as the co-owner of Ecos Research, uh, focusing on clean energy technologies and their trans transformation uh in our society, which is which we're going to be talking about uh, for half an hour. What are you working on today? What's happening this week? You know, I do a couple of different things, uh, some of which are associated with Ecos Research and some of which aren't. So I teach a, a graduate course out at Middlebury's campus in Monterey, California. So we just wrapped that up in the fall. That was a class on international renewable energy policy. Uh, they've got me developing a new course for them right now on sustainability and climate science. And it's going to be purely asynchronous, which is something I have not done before. You know, you pre-record your lectures, the students watch them on their schedule, and then you uh, interact with them over office hours, but not not in person, not live on on Zoom. So that's going to be quite interesting. And then we're uh, we continue to do a little bit of consulting work in the um, Energy Star world, and so we're in discussions with them about some additional work related to batteries and uh, electric vehicles and things like that. And then my other passion is clean tech investing, which is not something I do through Ecos Research, but it's tracking down the companies that are doing the best job of preventing climate change and proactively investing in them rather than just running down a checklist of bads that you want to make sure companies aren't doing if you want to buy their stock. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in all of these areas we're going to get into this. That's 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 great. Um, let's back up just for a second because everybody loves to hear sort of the personal side. Born and raised where? I have no idea where you were born. <laughs> um, born and raised, born in Independence, Missouri, um, down the street from where Harry Truman was, and um, grew up in Topeka, Kansas. So I always say to people, if you grow up in Topeka, Kansas, you can't make fun of where anybody else is from. <laughs> and and then off to Trinity College, which is in San Antonio. Is that right? Trinity University. Yeah, yeah. It's a liberal arts college in San Antonio. And so that was a giant culture shift for me, you know, going from white bread, middle America to a town that was 65% Hispanic and uh, a great education probably saved me from the absolute culture shock of having moved directly from Kansas to Berkeley, which I think most people couldn't survive. <laughs> so, uh, and you got a degree in environmental studies there right. in, in Texas, um, and then went to Berkeley and you were part of that ERG group, the energy, what is it, energy resources group at Berkeley? Energy resources group. Yeah. The ERG mafia, they call us sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, Dave, how, well, we have, we have lots of friends in common that went there and, and then, um, 
great, great program. And then you went off to NRDC directly. Is that the sequence? It's, it's actually even sort of more direct than that because they gave me my first summer job when I was halfway through the ERG program. And that's a story in itself. But um, they said, yeah, you can go work in our DC office for the summer and we'll find a project for you. So I arrived in, in Washington, DC in the summer of 88, the unusually hot summer of 88. And they said, well, we want you to look into this new topic called global warming. We're not sure if it should be something that our organization focuses on. So could you go and talk to the other organizations, see what's happening, and then write us a report at the end of the summer on whether global warming is something that we should focus on. So I was wow. NRDC's first global warming employee. <laughs> and and, and you, you suggested that maybe they ought to take a look at that, huh? As a matter of fact, I did. Yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of dying to go find that original report, which must be on a floppy Good. disk somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, the, the word climate change wasn't being used much at the time. But literally the first week I was there, um, Howard Geller and Steve Nadell and a couple other folks said, well, why don't you come with us? We're going to go over to this hearing in the Senate. It's this um, senator named Al Gore. And they're going to have somebody named James Hansen talking about whether climate change is happening. And I was like, OK, that seems like as good a place to be as any. And so I was in that hot, stifling room the day that James Hansen said climate change is happening. Humans are causing it and we need to take action. And that was 36 years ago. Incredible. What, what great, what great, what great history. And, and um were you at NRDC when we first met? I'm, I'm thinking that you were. That I was at Rocky Mountain Institute, and we had launched the Competitech service. That's uh, exactly now, right. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so you came to one of those forums, or maybe multiple forums. That's right. Yeah, um, my two bosses at NRDC were Ralph Cavana and David Goldstein, and yeah. they were big fans of you know plunging their new employees straight into the substance of whatever the organization was working on. And they said, "Go to these meetings." That's where I met Dave Houghton as well. You know, and and first time I met Amory was there and it was just a, it was kind of a chance to see the private sector side of energy efficiency innovation when most of my work at NRDC had been on the public policy side and on partnerships mm -hmm. with utilities. So that mm -hmm. kind of kindled a very early interest in focusing on private sector innovation and entrepreneurship. Right. Do you think you came to multiple forums there? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dave Houghton likes to tell the story that after Competitech became eSource, and I had left NRDC and moved out here to Colorado. One of my first projects for him at eSource was working on LED traffic signals. Back in the day, you know, when we really did have incandescent bulbs and traffic signals with color filters in front of them to make the color we wanted. And yeah. I think the second of those that I attended, um, Dave asked me to come do a talk on halogen torsiers. And so we fried up a, an egg or a grilled cheese sandwich or something or other on a it halogen. Was an egg. I, I... Yeah, yeah. An egg, fried an egg on a halogen lamp. What a great, what a great image. We had to make the point to the utilities, gosh, these things are awfully hot and they're not very good as light sources, but they mostly just make a lot of dangerous heat in your building. <laughs> so seven years at NRDC, it must have been extremely fulfilling and filling. Um, what 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 prompted you to, to move on to Ecos Consulting? Was it just to, to get into a different geographic location? You know, um, NRDC was a, was a fabulous um, training ground for me and a wonderful immersion in uh, state, national, and international policy issues. And so mm -hmm. I finally realized by 1995 or so, a couple of things, I realized that I didn't really want to live in the Bay Area for the rest of my life because I couldn't, couldn't, I never was going to be able to buy a house there. You know, it wasn't, wasn't home in that sense. And so I needed to find a different place to live. 
but also um, I had just finished reading Ecology of Commerce and just had this powerful sense that I needed to be in the private sector, right? That that um, public policy was enormously important for setting the boundaries and the directions and so forth, but the innovation was going to come from the private sector. And so when I left NRDC and moved to Durango, I had a you know small number of little consulting contracts and that was it. And we had to kind of had to reach out to some peers and we pieced together ecos consulting from four of us who had all met in the residential lighting space, but we were all living in different places. So I still have these humorous business cards that say ecos consulting and then underneath were the four cities of our <laughs> corporate headquarters, which meant, you know, four yeah. home offices. And it said, uh, it said Boston, Washington, DC, Los Angeles, Durango. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, the booming of, metropolis. How did you choose yeah. Durango of all? I mean, here you, like you said, you started out in Independence, Missouri, Topeka, Kansas, San Antonio, Texas, Berkeley, California. I guess San Francisco worked in the NRDC offices there right. with Ralph and David. How did you choose Durango? You know, that's a, a bit of a long story in itself. But um, in 1993, when I first started looking here, Durango was singularly affordable for what it offered, which was this amazing assortment of outdoor activities, you know, whitewater rafting, mountain biking, skiing, uh, backpacking, all this kind of stuff. And then it had uh, an airport, which I needed for the work I was doing and great restaurants and a college and live music and all the sort of things that you'd normally have to be in a bigger city for. But Durango was 16,000 people back then. And so I was able to buy a, a house on three acres of Aspens overlooking the desert for a hundred thousand bucks. Sweet. And so it was, it was really, a, it was an affordability, quality of life, and a, you know, something that aligns with where I wanted to go with my career, sort of those three things that drove me to move here. Good stuff. And then, and then you said that Eco started off really focused on lighting, or, or you guys had come together because you had done lighting projects. What, what, but I, I think you got into really supporting the whole Energy Star program, and, and, and I think some of the most interesting work is, was sort of analyzing consumer electronics and, and, and sort of taking that information and using it to uh, help to create standards. Yeah, it was, um, and, um, Ecos Consulting got started around residential lighting because um, one of our original founders had developed this cool model where he said, why don't we pay the rebate to the manufacturer rather than to the consumer? And it sounds like such a tiny little thing, right? Why would that even matter? But he correctly reasoned that if you, you know, could give three bucks to the manufacturer, by the time that rolled through the markup to the retailer and then the markup to the consumer, you'd get a much bigger savings on the final price for the oh. same amount of money than if you just gave yeah. the three bucks to the, you know, to the consumer. And so yeah. a lot of utilities hired us to implement their energy efficiency programs. And we started adding staff to our office in Los Angeles and eventually opened an office in Portland and moved the headquarters there. And then Lois Gordon joined us. And so all of that stuff mm -hmm. was going on in the background and kind of funding the enterprise. And so my team was always focused on research and policy. And we thought, you know, if most of the company is going out and trying to grab a bigger slice of the energy efficiency pie, some part of the company should be expanding the pie itself. Yeah. And so the research and policy shop's job was to go find new ways of saving energy that no utilities were currently incentivizing or rebating and figure out what it would take to get them out of the lab and into the store, you know, or or um, in the early stages of market transformation. So that's why like NRDC and Energy Star were our early clients. 
And um, we kind of dove into the consumer electronics space as much as anything because it was a personal interest of mine. You know, I was always a stereo geek and a um, computer geek and that kind of stuff. And so all these various electronic things, if there'd been any attention paid to their efficiency at all back then, it was only in terms of how much energy they used when you weren't using them. Yeah, right. right. The standby uh, and, or whatever. Yeah. But how did you, did you? I think you've dug in in ways that most of us wouldn't. I mean, you actually create a testing lab, right? Or you create right. testing labs, plural. Yeah, yeah. But we, in the early days, you know, we really did focus on products that were pretty simple to measure so that the the notion mm -hmm. of a lab wasn't some, you know, elaborate clean room with people dressed in white coats. You could do it in office space. And so literally, um, my colleagues and I got an interest in those external power supplies, you know, the little bricks that power all your electronics. And yeah. that became an obsession of ours for a period of years in the early 2000s. And so we literally went to all the... Um, we went to all the shops in town that had donated electronics, you know, like the Humane Society and Goodwill and all these places. And we just bought up every external power supply they had and we tested about 200 of them. Hmm. And such a simple test, right? It, it, all the thing is supposed to do is turn 120 volts AC into some lower voltage of DC. So all you got to do is put a load on it and then see, well, how much power comes in, how much power goes out. And the difference between the two is how much that device is wasting. And at the time, Alan Meyer and a lot of other folks were really focused on standby, you know, and saying, we got to get devices to use less power when you're not using them. And we said, that's absolutely true. And let's also get them to less use less power when you are using them. And so we found a bunch of these power supplies were 30 or 40% efficient, 20% efficient in some cases. And so the vast majority of the power coming into them wasn't doing anything useful at all. And we just happened to be in the right time in the right place with NRDC and EPA and the California Energy Commission as funders to where in the space of a few years, working with our clients, we were able to get a, a globally adopted test procedure for the products, globally adopted standardized labeling protocol with Roman numerals. And so that's that persists to this day. You know, if you pick up an external power supply and you look at it, you'll see a Roman numeral with a circle around it. And that is a, a shorthand indication of how efficient it is. And then, um, so the bigger uh, the bigger the numeral, the more efficient it is. Correct. Yeah, yeah. The best of them these days, I think, have a Roman numeral six. And when we started, so you didn't the, the the market with the bottom end was not cut out. Instead, there was just this labeling that makes it clear to consumers. Uh, well, we realized early on that external power supplies were too cheap, and they were a component mm -hmm. of a larger system. So you couldn't yeah. do rebates on them, right? The, the yeah. utility rebate model wasn't going to work. So we did a combination of voluntary labeling in partnership with Energy Star, mandatory labeling with the um, Roman numerals um, kind of uh, agreed to worldwide, and then a series of mandatory efficiency standards in various government jurisdictions around the world. And that's what did finally chop off the bottom. So, you know, yeah. we were trying to get rid of what you'd call a linear power supply and get everything over to switch mode or electronic power supplies. And that's a good 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 part of the reason why you know, the adapter that powers your cell phone and laptop and so forth today is so much smaller than the ones that powered our devices 10, 15, 20 years ago. And what efficiency are they now? You can routinely find um, power supplies that are sort of 80 to 90% efficient now. Uh, depends on their size and depends on how heavily loaded they are. But what amazes me is that there's that persistent belief, oh, I need to unplug these things when I'm not using them. And people are astounded to realize just how little power those things can draw now when they're plugged in. 
and they're not yeah. warm, right? If you go touch them when they're plugged in and not not right. operating anything, they're often just at room temperature and they might be drawing a hundredth of a watt, a couple hundredths of a watt. Yeah. And yeah. so How that's a real triumph. And one of the things we had to calculate at the end of the whole process was what effect did that initiative have worldwide? And it looked like um, by the early math we did, you know, 50 or more coal plants didn't get built worldwide to power all of the external power supplies that had been going along for years with really old copper windings in them and linear power supplies. Yeah, that Crazy is an awesome, what a, what a great accomplishment. 50 Rosenfelds, right? Isn't, Rosenfeld, a Rosen, yeah. isn't a Rosenfeld a 50 meg, 500 megawatt uh, power plant? I think. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was another endeavor that I worked on with John Kumi years ago, you know, trying to get a standardized metric for energy savings. Yeah. Wow, how great. Are there other were other the the, uh, the power supply is an interesting story. Were there other consumer electronics that that you found that uh, you know you could dig in on and and have also a similar impact? The, none of the other projects we worked on ever achieved that scale of savings just because you know external power supplies were so ubiquitous. I, I think yeah. the last time we did a calculation, there were like 10 billion of them, you know, and now that number would be quite low. Yeah. If you just look around your house at the number of things that are running on power supplies, I bet you'd find, you know, 15 or 20 of them in your house. Yeah. Like yeah. that. And so the main other products that we worked on over the years were um, we worked on computers, monitors, um, set top boxes, game consoles, battery charging systems. Um, we worked on um, most of the other kind of electronic things you could think of, you know, we, we took a look at home audio equipment more recently. Yeah. And it, in essence, the, the big ticket items got tackled first, right? So computers, TVs, yeah. monitors were some of the biggest. And, and I still remember looking at TVs for the first time and realizing that you could get an Energy Star label for a plasma TV that might draw three or 400 watts just because it had a low amount of power consumption when it was off. Uh -huh. And we thought, well, that's the wrong message. You know, let's at least try to yep. get active mode included in the way Energy Star labels consumer electronics. And now it's routinely included in all the various labels they do for consumer electronics. Okay, good for you. So you just sort of in a nutshell, you're you're you've been doing this research on these products and their and their efficiency or their inefficiencies, and that feeds right into policy, right? Whether it's DO, whether it's EPA, Energy Star, or whether it's California Energy Commission or Title 24 or whatever happens to be, it's a, it's really that front end. It's the proof, right? It's the proof of concept that, uh, that, that this needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think, I think we finally realized, you know, some years into my time at Ecos Consulting that the policy and research team was in essence working on the front end and the back end of market transformation, right? First, we had to identify new ways of saving energy that the utilities weren't rebating yet and get yeah. an efficiency metric, a test procedure and a labeling scheme in place so that people could even find the good ones. Then yeah. utilities in the middle of that life cycle would rebate the heck out of it and drive consumer demand toward the better products. And then we came along with help largely from clients like uh, PG&E and got funded to help them advocate for mandatory standards at the CEC or federally so that finally the least efficient products in the segment could just be taken out of the market entirely. Right. And then you could circle back and do that, you know, that whole cycle again at a new level of efficiency with a new technology, either with that product or another product category.
So yeah. that was fun. We were bookending the the utility incentive process that remained yeah. the majority of Ecos Consulting's revenue over the years. Yeah, that's really great. Good stuff, uh, Chris. You 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 went to Ecova. What what was that? Ecova was not a different company. What happened was okay. um, a company called Advantage IQ came along and bought Ecos Consulting in two thousand nine, and they had made a series of other purchases along the way. And so they eventually bundled all them together and gave the new uh, assembled enterprise the name of Ecova. I see. So nothing really changed in, in your life. Well, what changed and for the better was that uh, no longer being an owner of the company, I stopped attending board meetings. I didn't do any uh, performance reviews or uh, uh, you know management of staff. And I just got to be an individual contributor, subject matter expert, business development focused guy, went around and gave a lot of speeches and talks and attended conferences. And were, those were some of the happiest years of my life because I never really yeah. wanted to manage a large team of staff. And by the time we sold Ecos Consulting, we had 210 employees. Oh, is that right? Good for you. But I, I th we're, this is, we're really digging in understanding who, who Chris Caldwell is and what he likes to do and what he doesn't like to do. And he's clearly likes to be doing the actual research, right? And the, <laughs> and the education around the actual research and not the management of a that's right. Hundred, uh, hundred people. The phrase is "once a nerd, always a nerd." <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, you seem pretty balanced. You seem like a pretty balanced nerd to me, Chris. Um, in 2015, and maybe this is just another permutation of the same thing. You formed Ecos Research with our, our, my friend Dave Houghton, and also, I guess, there was another fellow, Greg Greg Hardy. Um, so, am I right? Is it just another permutation of your your works? Yeah, it's not radically different than what we did at Ecos Consulting, but it's just the research and policy dimension of it, right? So Ecos Research was never intended to be large enough to run utility incentive programs for utilities. Yeah. So we were just focused on um, finding new sources of energy savings, developing test methods and efficiency metrics, getting into the lab to measure them. And so some of our early work for NRDC was really fun on televisions. And that was uh, a project where we basically discovered that um, the manufacturers had gotten really clever at um, running the test procedure on their TVs in a way that made them look pretty efficient. You know, not, not unlike what automakers do with the automotive test procedure, right? They, they know how to get the car to test really well. But we, we were basically coming in to the lab and saying, well, let's show more normal stuff on a TV, you know, not this standardized test clip, but let's put the kind of stuff on the TV that most people like to watch. And so we we joked that we had the Shrek test and we had the cloudy with a chance of meatball test, you know, and different kinds of movies and shows like that. And we were able to show in a real decisive report within RDC that TVs used a lot more energy when you watch them the way most people watch them than the way they were being tested. And that subsequently led to a change internationally in how TVs are measured. I, I talked to Dave Houghton about this, your partner, and it, it sounds like there's a standard uh, video clip or series of video clips that are used in this standard test procedure for all televisions. And part of that includes some real sped up, is that right? High speed video. Uh, it was yeah, it, and then it the had, TVs would perceive that high-speed video, and then they would shut down their their normal power down to fifty percent or something. Kind of, it was a little more complicated than that. But the, <laughs> the original test clip consisted of a series of snippets that um, the trade association had donated for use, and 
you know, a lot of action movies and a lot of cartoons do have quick cuts. But if you watch the video test clip that was used worldwide, it was jarring in how quickly things would transition. Yep. And so that didn't represent the kind of TV most people watch. We also, you know, we were just making the point, gosh, most people now have 4K TVs. Why don't we show actual 4K content on the TV rather than this older clip that doesn't really resemble what people watch? And when a TV sees 4K content, it'll often get brighter and draw more power. Gotcha. Gotcha. How interesting. Wow. Um, now, you, you've you been described, you described yourself, I think, as an educator and an investor. You talked a little bit about your adjunct faculty position uh, at Middlebury. Um when it comes to investing in clean techs, I want to ask you a few a few questions. Um, certainly, it sounds exciting and risky, like all investing. But um, how do you? What advice can you give? I mean, many of us want to invest in clean techs. Uh, we want to invest in in startup companies. Uh, I'm EcoMotion is now affiliated with EnterTech Capital, which is doing this at a, a quite a large scale, and they've got a whole bank of in, you know researchers that are that are working with them. But what is your advice to people that might be listening that uh, want to get involved with clean tech investing? Well, I would say that it's not for the faint of heart, right? Uh, um, the traditional ESG uh, clean focused mutual fund out there you know, will often largely consist of companies like Apple and Microsoft that clear their screens for you know, do they do bad things? <laughs> do do yeah. they uh, do they sell cigarettes or do they you know manufacture weapons of mass destruction and things like that? And and th those are all great things. But I was more interested, have been more interested in the smaller startup companies, where investors, if they believe in them and make a commitment early on, might help them get to scale, and their technologies might make a transformative difference in the climate battle. And so you kind of have to accept the fact that if you're buying those stock in those early stage small companies, the failure rate is gonna be fairly high, right? Or some of the companies won't outright go bankrupt, but they'll struggle for a while and maybe never reach scale. And so I have to do even more research to see which ones might make that breakthrough. You know, And I, I spent some yeah. time, for example, looking at mining stocks for the companies that were getting the materials that are critical to make lithium ion batteries. And I think I was right in the fact that they were important, but I was wrong in timing. And so for years, lithium ion batteries were still at such an early stage that the demand for graphite and lithium and some of the other key minerals and batteries didn't take off. Now they are taking off and you get involved in all these international battles over you know, the fact that China is very much in control of the supply chain. And so you got to try to find the companies who either can locate those minerals outside of Chinese influence or the companies that focus on recycling them. And then you have a purely domestic supply, right? Because the old batteries are coming back, being shredded and disassembled in their component parts and then made into new batteries. So those are the kinds of spaces I look in. I've been super interested in the electric vehicle space. And like one of the things I tell people that probably made a breakthrough earlier than most is the very boring, straightforward pedestrian market sector of electric school buses, right? Because yeah. we might be at a tiny market share for personal electric vehicles, but the business case for an electric school bus is overwhelming. Uh, mm. you got mm. all these kids getting exposed to diesel fumes on aging school buses that have yeah. very high fuel cost and very high maintenance cost. And if you can just 
switch to an electric school bus, not only do you have a sort of a cleaner, quieter, safer, more affordable device for schools to drive around on the roads, and the schools, of course, are you know forever starved for funding. But on top of it all, you now have this giant battery that's sitting there at a time of day when it can soak up solar. You know, at yeah. just just the time that utilities don't want extra solar on the grid in the middle of the day, and then the ba- the bus gets back from dropping off students, plugs back into the grid, and it's a perfect time of day to feed its extra juice back into the grid with V2G and offset the peak. So it's it's a slam right. dunk. And then recharge at night. Yeah, or, or recharge or, or, or recharge yeah. again at night. Yep. Oh, very good. What do you what do you do? Uh, what a great discussion. Um, last couple of questions. What what do you do for balance in your life, Chris? You know, I I retain the same interest in outdoors and photography that I had when I first moved to Durango, and so there's an amazing number of things to go see and explore just around this area. And so, still doing a lot of travel. And photography, um, I have this odd little interest in pinball, and so I'll, I'll buy up old pinball machines and fix them up, or buy new ones and play them for a while and resell them. And uh, I would say, other than that, just trying to go see new cultures and travel and uh, read. And of, of all your of all your global travels, uh, where where what, what do you say the most interesting places have been for you? Well, that's a good question. Um, I have been to Italy four times and it never, ever gets old to me. You know, yeah. I don't have any Italian heritage, but it just feels I, good. <laughs> yeah. But when I'm there, I'm like, these people have it figured out, right? They, yeah. The architecture, the food, the wine, the um, even just the vibrancy and the warmth of the people. And um, I feel very at home there. I love to just wander around with a camera and have no plan at all, right? Just yeah. I'm going to go down the street, turn down any alley that's interesting, stick my head into any shop or restaurant that's interesting, and follow my nose. And that's a, a lovely part of the world. What a great thing. Hey, listen, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And, and thanks for what you're, you're doing on our cause of transforming our energy and environmental uh, society here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Chris. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.